This podcast topic suggestion comes from Haley, who's a nurse practitioner in South Carolina. Haley, thank you for your message. I've enjoyed our conversations on Facebook. Here's your podcast episode. All right, podcast family, listen to this. I suspect that few of us would admit to being clinically biased, but that's biased in and of itself because we're talking about ourselves. (laughs) That's not very objective, is it? And although we are definitely trying to be objective and to practice medicine regardless of background or race, ethnicity, The truth is we all carry some of that in our subconscious. Let let me set the stage here and how this relates to our topic. If you had a non-hirsute, Caucasian, thin female who comes to you for irregular periods, you'd probably think, oh, it's some hypothalamic dysfunction and she's lean. So it's probably perhaps the female athlete triad, which now we call it, of course, an an energy imbalance. Um, But how many of you would go straight or actually in the top three consider things like PCOS? Well, we should, because there is a specific phenotype of PCOS that is non-hirsute and a type of PCOS that is lean. They are not all obese with clinical signs of hirsutism and acanthosis nigricans on the back of their neck. See, that's a little bit of being clinically biased. While in that lean Caucasian patient with irregular cycles, we would usually talk about stress. We'd maybe check a TSH level, check a prolactin, and all that's reasonable. But do we go straight to the idea of PCOS? Well, again, we should. So in this episode, I thought we would tackle this idea of polycystic ovarian syndrome, the traditional Stein and Leventhal condition, Um, because we do need to figure this out. PCOS patients aren't one box. There's actually four different phenotypes. And so this idea for this message came from somebody who's a part of our podcast family who messaged me on our Facebook page and said, Hey, Dr. Chop, I listen anecdotally. Uh, you know, I've had some patients that have struggled with PCOS. They get pregnant. And then after pregnancy, they, they kind of have a resumption of their normal period for a while. Uh, is that normal? Uh, is, that, is that like a treatment of PCOS? And the answer is yes. PCOS does have a variety of presentations, even in one person's lifespan. And they may go from one letter designation, like phenotype A, to another designation maybe phenotype D several years down the road. We're going to explain what these letter designations mean. And we're going to cover the lean PCOS patient because it is something that we should consider in any patient who has irregular cycles or oligomenstruation. We don't use that anymore, but few cycles uh, because it is a possibility. So let's cover the PCOS variants or the PCOS phenotypes in this episode. Just trying to keep everyone up to date on evidence-based practice because medicine moves real fast. This is Clinical Pearls. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... 
All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I want to have a syndrome named after me. Let's see, what should that be? Let's see, short stature, uh, circulatory composition, predominantly made of caffeine uh, and then sleeps very little. Let's call that the Choppa syndrome. Uh, yeah, that's not. Stein and Leventhal did have a syndrome named after them, and that's the Stein and Leventhal condition. That was published in the American Journal of OBGYN, the Gray Journal, back in 1935. This basically had this syndrome of a dyad, all right? So it started out with two findings, women who had amenorrhea, and they also had bilateral cysts on their ovaries, these little string of pearls appearance in the cortex of the ovary. Uh, so the first amazing thing is, yeah, the Gray Journal's been out for a long time. Second, ultrasounds have been around for a long time, although it wasn't very good. and It was considered experimental back then. Uh, and then the third thing is that what started out as a dyad then got expanded to a triad in finding that some of these women uh, who also had infertility also had had hirsutism. That's the Stein and Leventhal syndrome. That, of course, was changed later to polycystic ovarian disease. Yeah, it was called PCOD once, but now we know it's not really a disease. It's a syndrome. It's syndromic. And so now we're left with PCOS. So we've learned a lot about this, both about the pathophysiology, about the future risk of cardiovascular and metabolic consequences. But polycystic ovarian syndrome is not one box. So let's talk about first the different types of diagnostic criteria because there's three, although OBGYNs and women's healthcare providers predominantly use one of them. That's called the Rotterdam criteria. Um, But all PCOSs are not the same. We're going to get into the four different types of phenotypes, which are based more on history. Actually, they're historical uh, and biochemical. Um, And then we're going to talk about the lean PCOS phenotype, because that's actually not part of the original four. That's considered a variant of it. All right. So four main types of PCOS are letters A, B, C, and D. And then lean PCOS, it's considered PCOS light, if you will, or PCOS variant. For the diagnostic criteria, there's three main types. The first was out of 1990, which was the first kind of organized way to look for PCOS on a clinical basis. Remember, this is all clinical. The National Institute of Health criteria from 1990 required two things to be present, and that was it. If you had these two things, then you would check the box and they would meet criteria for PCOS, all right? So it was all or none. You needed two of these. That's why most don't use this because we know it's much more broad than this. But the original NIH criteria for PCOS diagnosis was that the patient had to have hyperandrogenism, either clinically or biochemically, and they had to have irregular or oligoamenorrhea. Now, I know we're not using that term anymore, but I'm using it here because most people are familiar with it. Short of it is that to have skips to long periods of delay in their cycle. All right. So that's the NIH 1990 where two things were required. Then, in 2003, came the Rotterdam consensus criteria. This required two of three possible things for diagnosis. So there's more flexibility in this now. All right, so two of these three things were required, all based, again, on laboratory or clinical factors. The first was hyperandrogenism. Second was irregular periods with skips and delays, just like the NIH. And then the third was that it added polycystic 
ovaries by ultrasound diagnosis. In other words, polycystic ovarian morphology. So now we're at Rotterdam 2003, adding the ultrasound image uh, for the uh, ovaries. And again, none of those are required. Any two of those three could be possible to check that box. Then in 2006, so three years after Rotterdam, the AES gave their criteria. The AES is the Androgen Excess Society. They stated that the only one that was required here as the Androgen Excess Society is, guess which one? Yep, that's androgens. <laughs> so by definition, by their namesake, that's how you remember that, the Androgen Excess Society requires hyperandrogenism. That's either clinical or laboratory based. All right, that's hyperandrogenism. And then the other two factors of irregular cycles as skips or delays and polycystic ovarian morphology may or may not be present. All right, so for androgen excess society, it required hyperandrogenism plus one of those two remaining items. So let's cover that again. For the NIH back in 1990, it required two things hyperandrogenism and jacked up periods, all right? Usually few and, and delayed. Rotterdam was two of the three, so a little bit more flexible. And that was hyperandrogenism, irregular periods, and then polycystic ovarian morphology. And the third diagnostic scheme was the androgen excess society that required, by definition, excess androgen, so hyperandrogenism, and one of the two remaining issues, either the irregular cycles and or the polycystic ovaries on the ultrasound morphology. Okay, fine. ACOG recognizes all three of these different schemes, but most gynecologists use the Rotterdam criteria because it seems to have the best performance and, again, the more flexibility, so it has better capture of patients who may present with polycystic ovarian syndrome. This is why it's important to understand that PCOS is very heterogeneous and very complex, okay? Because when we first think of PCOS as a patient who's hirsute and obese, um, that's part of literature bias because we now know that not all patients with PCOS are obese. Now, they all seem to share one biochemical hallmark, which is some degree of insulin resistance, even in those who are lean, okay? That's a key component here, although it can vary in their severity of insulin resistance. And we'll talk about that a little bit later on in the episode because even that is tricky. The reason that some escape a diagnosis of insulin resistance depends on mainly how you look for it. Take, for example, the fasting finger stick. So if you check a fasting finger stick for a fasting glucose and it's normal, uh, that's great. That's good. At least they're not in the diabetic range or in that 100 to 125 gray zone, which is otherwise known as impaired glucose tolerance. But if you pass that, if your fasting glucose is less than 100, it doesn't mean that you are in the clear because you could still have some hyperinsulinemia. It just hasn't presented yet because the first thing in this pathway is insulin resistance, and then you get to the altered glucose in that 100 to 125 fasting state, and then it crosses the 126 threshold into diabetes. So just because you fast in the morning and you have a normal fasting glucose and it's okay, doesn't mean that you're in the clear. It's not that sensitive, all right? So fasting glucose is not the best to look for fasting hyperglycemia. Now, obviously, if your fasting glucose is 200, I mean, you've got diabetes. But if it's normal, it may miss some that are still hyperinsulinemic. But even fasting insulin by itself is not good. So we'll talk about later why the ratio, the fasting glucose 
uh, to fasting insulin level probably performs better. And then there's all these other tests like the HOMA, that's H-O-M-A test. And we're going to get into that in a little bit later. But all to say is uh, the reason the data is very conflicting here has to do with how insulin resistance is measured and diagnosed. But it seems to be key to all forms of PCOS to some degree, uh, especially more uh, prevalent in the obese PCOS patient, but even in the lean, that hyperinsulinemia here is the key. Now, I'm not going to pretend to know where insulin fits in here, all right? Because this is the great, the proverbial chicken or the egg dilemma. So while most agree that insulin is pivotal here in the pathogenesis of PCOS, where it fits along that line of pathogenesis is really hard to figure out. In other words, does hyperinsulinemia alone contribute to PCOS, or is PCOS then the stage that sets up the likelihood of hyperinsulinemia? And the answer is yes. So where where it affects it, is it start off and then, or later it it then develops? I I don't know. All of the data is very conflicted here. But we can agree on the fact that hyperinsulinemia is a factor, right? Hyperinsulinemia affects the ovary. It affects the adrenals. It affects the uh, ability of glucose to be taken up. We're going to talk about all of this a little bit later on, I think. I mean, there's a lot to cover, but uh, all to say is you've, we've got to realize that this insulin issue is part of the dilemma, all right? Uh, and again, does it come at the beginning or later at the end as a result? Very hard to figure out. The way that you'd figure out this trial would be almost impossible. You'd have to grab a cross-section of a female population at an early age, keep tracking their insulin levels on a reproducible validated scale, and then follow them later to see who develops PCOS. Now remember, this ha- would have to catch them right around pubarchy. And this would have to follow them for, what, five to ten years. That's a great study. It's also really hard to do because <laughs> uh, there's genetic factors and dietary and a lot of the other issues that go on. But that's how you'd figure out, is it the insulin that happens first or uh, is it a result of the other metabolic endocrine issues and then you get hyperinsulinemia? Um, boy, I've confused myself. Does that make sense? I hope it did. All to say, insulin is important. All right, so let me give you a little insight to how we do this. Sometimes I record remotely and then I send it and they package it and make it kind of nice and try to edit as much as they can of my nonsense uh, outside of the script. <laughs> and sometimes we do things together. And I know I'm kind of going off in the tangent when the person who's recording and kind of the sound person who helps put things together is looking at me and shaking their head. Uh, yeah, I take verbal cues. So anyway, that was an aside. <laughs> Oh, and in talking about diagnostic ability, see, this is why I love this area of PCOS because it's ever-changing, all right? Even though the diagnosis is made based on clinical factors in history, all right? Clinical being either uh, phenotype, I mean, physically what they look like with hirsutism or laboratory evidence. Um, even though that's the issue based on one of the three diagnostic schemes, we are finding out that there are other biochemical markers. We already talked about the insulin effect, um, but there's also a role here for a MH, all right, antimylurian hormone. This is also being investigated as a possible secondary marker in cases where you're not real sure if the patient has PCOS or not, because antimylurian hormone has been found to be two to three times higher, specifically in certain phenotypes of PCOS, those that have hyperandrogenism and those who have polycystic ovarian morphology, all right? So in those that are hyperandrogenic 
either by clinical appearance uh, or by laboratory data or have polycystic ovarian morphology, they're found to have higher levels of anti-Mylurian hormone. That's why in patients who present with infertility and then, then are diagnosed based on their history of having PCOS, it's important to them to check the anti-Mylurian hormone level because what we're finding is traditionally, right, AMH, oh, that means it's a good number of follicles. That's good. So as long as it's not too low, uh, then your ovarian reserve is okay. What we're finding is too much of a good thing is also bad. So too high AMH levels defined as greater than two to three fold is also not good because what the data has shown is that the reason the AMH levels are higher in these PCOS patients is because they're having a higher rate of ovarian development uh, and then they get stunned into the cortex, all right? All to say AMH is another marker uh, that is being investigated for PCOS as a supplemental uh, uh, diagnostic tool to increase specificity. And AMH also has big value for patients who present with uh, infertility and are thought to have the PCOS condition. If you want more information on this, I mean, this was something that very interesting. It's right on the heels of new data. Researchers from Well Cornell have studied this. Uh, this had come out in 2022, just last year. And it's a great review on AMH. Uh, this was out of Science Advances, all right? So the lead author is Man, as in M-A-N, Man, right? Limor Man. And the title was Chronic Superphysiologic AMH Promotes Premature Luteinization of Antral Follicles in Human Ovarian Xenografts. Yeah. That's a lot of words. <laughs> and that just came out again uh, in 2022 in March. So literally one year ago, we are now finding out that PCOS and AMH are uniquely related and may actually be a contributing factor to infertility. Not to sidetrack off the insulin thing, but I thought the AMH topic was interesting. But I do want to say this further thing about this insulin resistance issue. I think it's interesting when you read something, um, what some of the words are used, because words really do have meaning here, okay? So let me direct you to ACOG's um, practice bulletin, which was from June 2018. That's number 194, all right? ACOG practice bulletin, June 2018, practice bulletin number 194 on obviously, polycystic ovary syndrome. Because under the etiology, here's what the college states, quote, insulin resistance may be central to the etiology of the syndrome, end quote. Okay, fine. But the key word there is may be central. Notice they didn't bet everything on it because we just don't know. So as of 2018 from the college, insulin resistance may be central to the etiology of the syndrome. So there we have it as a causative issue, but those words may be mean a lot. And of course, obesity here is a comorbid issue that can amplify these effects. But remember, neither obesity nor insulin levels are part of the diagnostic criteria. Okay, so that's an important issue. Don't forget our three criteria, NIH, Rotterdam, and then AES. Those are strictly either obvious phenotype, right? Hirsutism uh, by clinical matters and then history uh, have got irregular periods. Boom, right there. You meet Rotterdam criteria, knowing that it's got great sensitivity, but maybe not so much on the specificity. That's where getting these ancillary tests, like perhaps the insulin level um, and measuring, of course, estradiol, uh, getting the ultrasound, that's where you increase the specificity. Now, a quick word uh, about some blood work, all right? Because PCOS as a diagnosis 
by any of the three criteria, NIH, Rotterdam, or AES, all of those requires that you rule out other causes of irregular periods and or hyperandrogenism, all right? So it all requires, all of them require a search for thyroid abnormalities and uh, prolactin because hyperprolactinemia can also stimulate uh, the ovaries and the adrenals to produce hyperandrogenism, which can affect periods. So remember, don't go straight there. You still have to do due diligence. You still need to look and rule out other overt causes of hirsutism and irregular cycles. And the most basic eval of that, uh, and it's in the college bulletin, is TSH and prolactin. No, I haven't forgotten about the four phenotypes, A, B, C, and D. I'm going to get to that. But this issue of insulin is a big deal because part of the evaluation, before you start drawing labs and everything else, once you do your history, it's part of that physical. I mean, you can find physical evidence of hyperinsulinemia or insulin resistance uh, outside of lab work. Obviously, if there's centripetal fat distribution, there's a presence of acanthosis nigricans. Uh, clinically, if they have hypertension, if they are at a higher BMI, all of these things are markers of insulin resistance. And I think it's amazing. I have no interest in dermatology, but the body, right, the skin gives you flags to disease. It's a window of what's going on underneath the veil, the veil being the skin, of course, because acanthosis nigricans is a dermatological manifestation uh, of insulin resistance. That's that velvety, kind of mossy-like, uh, sometimes verrugous nature uh, of the skin, typically on the back of the neck uh, or intertriginous folds, right? The axilla uh, in between the uh, the groin uh, and sometimes under the breast. Uh, and this is a big issue here. If you have that, uh, it, it almost, almost guarantees insulin resistance. Oh, here's a random tidbit and a clinical pearl because not all acanthosis nigricans is IR, is insulin resistance, okay? Do y'all remember the one malignant disease that's associated with it? Anybody? Anybody? Uh, well, I was going to have you kind of message the podcast, um, but I'm just going to tell you anyway. It's adenocarcinoma of the stomach. Is that wild or what? Uh, that's always a little pimp session that we give to our medical students is where else is acanthosis nigricans prevalent uh, or a manifestation of in certain malignancies, specifically adenocarcinoma of the stomach. Before we leave this issue of insulin, at least for now, we have to say the evidence-based fact that there's not one recommended or universally accepted screening test for insulin resistance, right? We've already covered that uh, a little bit early on. That's why the data is always sometimes a little conflicting because it depends how they define that, all right? And fasting glucose levels are just poor predictors of glucose intolerance. So that has its flaws as well. One of the tests that can be done that's easy to use is the fasting glucose to insulin ratio that has been published as having good sensitivity and specificity from paired glucose tolerance or insulin resistance, right? Those two things are the same. So when viewed as a screening test, a fasting glucose to insulin ratio of less than 4.5 in those specifically who are obese, right? This was done in obese patients, but a fasting glucose to insulin ratio less than 4.5 uh, can be considered a, a good way to screen for hyperinsulinemia or fasting insulin resistance, all right? So that's a value of less than 4.5 uh, compared to the fasting glucose value. That's the ratio because your insulin is higher. So glucose on top, insulin on the bottom of a ratio, less than 4.5. 
Uh, and that's definitely not the only way to check that, but that's one way to do it without doing a uh, two-hour screen um, or doing a lot of other metabolic tests. Just something that's out there. Again, it's not perfect, but this is one of the tests that has been published. If you want to know where this came from, it goes back all the way until 2001. This was published in the Journal of Clinical Endocrinology and Metabolism. And the title is Fasting Glucose Insulin Ratio, a Useful Measure of Insulin Resistance in Girls with Premature Adrenal. Anarchy. All right, so October 2001 in the Journal of Clinical Endocrinology and Metabolism. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Okay, my goodness, it feels like it's taken forever to get to these phenotype things, all right? And we still have to cover the lean PCOS patient. All right, let's get into the four main types of PCOS based on their clinical history uh, and or laboratory evidence. Very easily, they're labeled A, B, C, and D, all right? So phenotype A is known as the complete PCOS uh, patient. These include biochemical or clinical hyperandrogenism. They have irregular periods and they have polycystic ovarian morphology. In other words, they meet all three of the Rotterdam criteria. All right. So if you have a patient who has hyperandrogenism, either clinically or by lab, they have irregular periods uh, and they have polycystic ovarian system morphology, then you can say, hey, you have phenotype A or the complete PCOS phenotype. Then there's phenotype B. This is called classic PCOS. So there's complete and then there's classic. I know that's confusing, but that's what it is. Phenotype B includes hyperandrogenism and irregular periods. So that's without the ultrasound. So right there, right off the bat, two of the three Rotterdam criteria, um, if they have hyperandrogenism, either clinically and or by lab evidence, uh, and you get oligoovulation, um, or irregular periods, few and, and scattered cycles, that's phenotype B. Now, if you have a phenotype B and then they get the ultrasound and, oh, lo and behold, they have PCOS morphology, well, then obviously you can move them up to phenotype A. Then there's phenotype C. Phenotype C is known as ovulatory PCOS. You see, once again, our clinical bias is that, oh, PCOS patients, they don't ovulate. Well, that depends because some actually have very regular periods, but they meet qualifications, they meet diagnostic criteria for the other components of PCOS. So phenotype C, which is ovulatory variety or ovulatory PCOS, are patients with hyperandrogenism. And you do an ultrasound and you find, lo and behold, they've got polycystic ovaries. They're like, but my periods are super regular. Fantastic. Right now, in this slice of time, you're a category C or phenotype C, rather. All right? Now, it could be that those that have hyperandrogenism, eventually they'll catch up because the androgenism milieu throws off the ovarian cycle because of the FSH and LH uh, incompatibility with that. And so it could be that B will later on be coming classic PCOS, which is phenotype B, and then if they meet all three criteria, C can become phenotype A. 
Does that make sense? It makes sense to me. So maybe it's better to write it down. But anyway, phenotype A is all three things of Rotterdam. B is hyperandrogenism, meaning irregular periods without the ultrasound. And then C is ovulatory PCOS. That brings us to phenotype D. That's D like in dog. This is also known as non-hyperandrogenic PCOS. These include patients with irregular cycles. Then you do an ultrasound and, oh, lo and behold, they've got polycystic ovarian morphology. So because they meet those two of the three Rotterdam criteria, they're PCOS, but they're non-hyperandrogenic. Again, D can become C very easily and D can become B. These things are not static. They are alive and flexible. All right. I think we've covered that enough. A, B, C, and D. C is ovulatory PCOS and D is non-hyperandrogenic PCOS. Okay, we need to get moving because if not, this thing's going to be like 40 minutes long and I don't have the attention span for that and neither do you. But before I go into the lean PCOS patient, uh, because we talked about tests or lab evidence of hyperandrogenism, we got to say the obvious fact, and ACOG recognizes this, is that uh, what does that mean? I mean, there's no one universal accepted test for androgens and that's one of the issues. In that bulletin, the college states, quote, the best measurement of circulating androgens to document unexplained androgen excess is uncertain. The present recommendation by the AES is to measure free testosterone concentrations either directly by equilibrium dialysis or to calculate the free testosterone based on total testosterone measured in an accurate way and then matching that to the amount of sex hormone binding globulin. Each clinician should be familiar with the analytical performance and the normal ranges of their own local laboratories in determining these tests. Evaluation of DHEAS levels may be useful in cases of rapid virilization as a marker of adrenal origin, but its utility in assessing common hirsutism is otherwise questionable. End quote. All right, let's wrap this thing up by talking about the lean PCOS variant. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive help supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. First things first, lean PCOS is a variant, okay? I mean, if you take a look at the data and both from ASRM and ACOG, the majority of women with PCOS do have an above average BMI, right? That's about 80%, but 20% don't. Again, these are called atypical PCOS or the lean PCOS variant. So again, it's not the majority, it's about 20%. There's three publications here that I found very helpful when studying for and learning about uh, lean PCOS. The first, we're going to go kind of from recent to back. The first one was in um, Metabolism um, Open. That was in 2021. That was published by Luigi Barrera. The title was PCOS and Nutritional Approaches, Differences Between Lean and Obese Phenotypes. Another good publication that you want me want to go back and review is by Tusi. That's T O O S Y. That was from 2018 in the Journal of Diabetes and Metabolism Disorders. 
The title is Lean Polycystic Ovarian Syndrome, an Evidence-Based Practical Approach. And then the last one was from 2017. This publication from 2017 is from the Journal of Human Reproductive Sciences, and the title is Debates Regarding Lean Patients with Polycystic Ovary Syndrome, a Narrative Review. Two authors here, that's Goyle and Dawood. Lean, in this case, refers to a healthy BMI. The healthy BMI ranges are, of course, from 18 to 24.9. But lean doesn't always mean better, especially in the context of PCOS. In fact, having lean PCOS can make it harder to get diagnosed. So these patients often go for a prolonged period of time because they don't look like the, quote, classic PCOS patient. Now, here's the unfortunate reality, though. These patients are still at risk of the same long-term health complications as other forms of PCOS. The main take-home message here is that lean patients with PCOS are the same, yet different, than the traditional 80% of PCOS patients who are weight-heavy. Yep, the same, but different. Don't you just love that? But that's exactly what they are. Remember first that BMI is not part of any diagnostic criteria, so we don't use weight or BMI for the diagnosis of PCOS, but rather it's a prognostic factor as well as a potential etiological contributor. Insulin hypersecretion is the probable underlying mechanism here in both lean and obese subjects. Insulin resistance should be assessed in all women with PCOS, both lean and obese. Some studies have shown that lean PCOS patients have insulin resistance as well, just to a lesser degree compared with the overweight or obese cohort. Remember that phenotypes may vary over time, so placing a patient that's lean in the PCOS designation in one letter phenotype requires reassessment maybe three to six months down the road because their letter may change. In general, obese phenotypes have more severe clinical manifestations of PCOS than their lean equivalent. However, both share many central pathophysiological processes. Both can have hyperandrogenism. Both can have various degrees of insulin resistance. They both show signs of biochemical oxidative stress. They have signs of chronic inflammation and they have lipid abnormalities. Isn't that interesting? Even though they're leaner than the traditional counterparts, they still have the same lipid abnormalities. Lean patients with PCOS still have higher levels of LDL cholesterol and lower levels of HDL cholesterol. That was published in the 2017 publication that we referenced a little while ago by Goyle and Dawood. So as we mentioned at the beginning of the episode, just because a patient presents who is lean and not the prototypic, at least phenotypically, the patient with PCOS, if she presents with irregular cycles and signs of hyperandrogenicity, that can include acne or hair loss um, or hirsutism, then remember they still require the full evaluation for PCOS. And we can prevent this lean PCOS group from having a misdiagnosis or being diagnosed six months, one year, or two years down the road. Remember, they're at higher risk of delayed diagnosis. In terms of treatment, well, remember, of course, that there's no single universal treatment available for PCOS. So treatment was always be individualized to the needs of the patient and considering their specific phenotype and their desires. So if it's for fertility, then they require fertility evaluation and treatment. If it's just for hirsutism, then that's the other pathway. So remember to tailor your treatment based on the patient's expectations, desires, and needs. Considering that insulin resistance is a major issue 
issue for all PCOS patients. Consider doing an evaluation for insulin resistance across all patients regardless of their BMI. The first-line treatment for PCOS, regardless of their weight, is healthy lifestyle modification, since we know, of course, that ideal body weight can help restore some of these metabolic derangements. And if they're not overweight, if they are in that lean category, then encourage them to stay in that category and encourage them to increase their exercise activity. There's also growing data here that vitamin D can play a crucial role in patients with PCOS. Vitamin D deficiency is commonly diagnosed in women with PCOS and is significantly correlated with insulin resistance. I promise we're at the end of the episode, but listen to this startling fact about vitamin D. Vitamin D deficiency is associated with lower adiponectin levels. So if you think adiponectin, I mean, what the heck does that have to do with anything? Well, for PCOS, it has to do with a lot. Adiponectin is crucial for the healthy glycemic metabolism of the body. Adiponectin is an anti-inflammatory hormone that's produced by fat cells, and it helps with insulin sensitivity. It helps with overall metabolism, and it helps to regulate appetite and satiety. So in other words, it helps prevent obesity. You see why this is important? So lower vitamin D lowers adiponectin, so you get higher insulin resistance, you get poor metabolism, and you get less satiety. So vitamin D with PCOS is a big deal. I know the data with vitamin D in the general population isn't so clear, but it's growing in its weight. It's growing in its evidence for vitamin D therapy. There has been data that's been published that vitamin D supplementation in those that are vitamin D deficient and who have PCOS can help improve some signs of insulin resistance. Yep, this was actually published in November of 2017 in the journal Nutrients. And the title of that publication is The Effect of Two Different Doses of Vitamin D Supplementation on Metabolic Profiles of Insulin-Resistant Patients with Polycystic Ovary Syndrome. So consider checking a 25-OHD level in your PCOS patients regardless of BMI because it's an easy adjuvant therapy that can help prevent worsening of symptoms and may actually help improve insulin sensitivity. All right, podcast family, not all PCOS patients are the same. They have different presentations, they have different needs, and they have different lab abnormalities. So I hope you found this episode helpful. As always, we're thankful for you and we're glad you're part of our podcast community. And we'll see you on another episode of Clinical Pearls.